Hi there, my name is Wale Emmanuel and you're welcome to a new episode of In These Moments. Today's episode is a very special one. It's an episode that has been in the works for a while. It features my conversation with El Didi Don, who was graceful enough to speak with me twice to have this episode done. So basically, after months of planning and talking about this. I think I started talking to LD in 2019 about doing this. He was down for it, but things happened. You know, the holidays came, end of the year, Corona happened. So everything was just all over the place. We eventually got to record in June. We spoke for about three hours. We had a long conversation where he gave me so many stories. I was like, yo, this episode is going to be something. I was actually thinking of possibly making it the longest episode ever. But something happened after the conversation. We completely lost the audio file. I didn't have a backup, which was so weird because I usually have a backup for everything. Just didn't work out. So we decided we're going to take a little bit to do this again. We eventually did this a few weeks ago. He was kind enough to give me his time again to do this. He was really helpful, sat down with me for another few hours to record this. And that's hard because whenever you're speaking to somebody famous, it's always interesting because they usually don't want to give their time to people that much for him to speak to me for hours in the first place and him deciding to do this again everything that happened in between you know it just shows how big of a person he is and how great of a person he is so i want to say thank you to ld for doing that if you're not familiar with ld the don he is one of the um i say founders of what we call Afrobeats music coming from Nigeria. Now, it shouldn't be confused with Afrobeats, which is what Fela Kuti created, which is a fusion of jazz, funk, Nigerian traditional music, high life, and other sounds. Now, Afrobeats is more of the popular Nigerian music that has been played out there now for the last 10, 15 years. Um, the like of Wizkid, Davido, Burner Boy, and a bunch of them. That sound is called Afrobeat. So LD was one of the people who laid the foundation for that to be possible. If you are a certain age, you remember a time where Nigerian music was just musicians making Nigerian versions of popular American songs didn't have the identity, didn't have the originality that we have come to know. So when LD and Tribesmen came into the picture, they were a hip-hop group that consisted of young men who were clearly influenced by the Western elements of music. And they basically said, hey, we can take some of that and insert us speaking in our language, insert Pigeon English and different aspects to just make this more original and less gimmicky and less um, copycat as it used to be. Afrobeats has grown up to being the monster that it is now, but a lot of people don't really know that there was a time where there was nothing. There was a time where the most popular forms of Nigerian music were Juju music, Fuji music, High Life, and all those genres that are a little bit more for the older people now. This story is a story of a man with a vision, was invested in creating where there wasn't. Most people who know me know I don't enjoy speaking to celebrities and popular people so much. 
because a lot of them have this sort of shield that they put on in the sense that you're trying to get them to speak about things and there's always this show that's up there but ld is one of the people who i knew was going to be open about speaking on some of the highs the lows the beautiful the ugly really being transparent and giving us a good account of his story and his journey without further ado let's get into ld's story my name is larry debris popularly known as LD or LD the Don. I uh, started off in my early years as a uh, musician. I started a group called Tribesmen. Tribesmen went on to create the genre, I guess that is popularly referred to today as Afrobeats. We called it Afro hip hop or Nigeria hip hop, but I guess it morphed into what is now known as Afrobeats. I was born in Zaria. Zaria is in Kaduna State, the northern parts of Nigeria. I grew up pretty much in Kaduna. My mom was in Kaduna at the time. Um, She was working at a bank. So I grew up in Kaduna um, with my sisters, completed high school in Kaduna. And then after that, I moved to Lagos for university. And then after university is when I moved to the U.S. You know, growing up in Kaduna, I think one of the biggest things was the fact that we had early access, I would say, to Western influences by virtue of the fact that the first company that brought in like cable television was actually in Kaduna. As a matter of fact, it was a friend of mine's dad, you know, company that actually did that. The company's called ABG. Back then it was like huge satellite dishes that you needed to have. And they would, you know, put like a 10 meter dish in your compound someplace, point it up to the sky and voila, you were watching, <laughs> you were watching like, you know, all of these channels, um, MTV. I remember witnessing the birth of shows like UMTV Raps and all of that other good stuff. So there was a lot of like that Western hip hop influence, I guess, you know, for me growing up, as well as a lot of the folks who I grew up around as well. Like we were all kind of into the same things. I mean, this is like my early teenage years when we were learning about hip hop and and R&B and and really getting into everything around the culture, breakdance and skateboarding, you know, like just anything you could think of we were into at the time. First of all, even wanting to be in the Western world, you know, came from those influences, wanting to be around hip hop, wanting to make music, you know, wanting to do something around the arts. It all kind of came from having that background. LD talks about his challenges and his experiences growing up in the North as somebody from a Yoruba family when you're young you don't notice these things right i was having a discussion with someone about the u.s and and kids and like talk about racism and i said to him i said look the kids don't know anything about it until you start teaching them right until you start telling them you're different and these people are different and those people are different and these are the people you need to be around and those are the people you shouldn't be around and these people are more valuable than those people so growing up you know in the younger years i couldn't tell the difference whether you're yoruba or hausa or Igbo or even Southern Zaria, like non-Muslim Northerners, right? Everybody just spoke Hausa or English, so it didn't really matter. But once you start getting into like the teenage years, those things start to rear their heads because now kids are being told by their parents, don't bring so-and-so to my house. Don't hang around so-and-so. These are the unbelievers and these are the people you need to be around and this is where you need to be and, and not be. So those things started to kind of become more pronounced as we got older. And by the time I was 15, man, I was ready to just leave. 
because it was so in your face. Like, so when people talk about like racism, like in America, like I get, I, I get it in a way because I faced a similar type of discrimination. I actually almost want to say as compared to what folks are experiencing now, maybe a worse type of discrimination. Everything I'm going to say now, I need to premise with the fact that this isn't necessarily me wanting to say these, this group is bad or that group is bad. It's just a human condition that when you are the majority, you tend to notice the minorities and you tend to segregate against the minorities or discriminate against the minorities. It's just like I've come to understand that that's really just the human condition. So the way that it was and the kind of things that I dealt with would be like, oh, you are Yoruba, so you can't come to so-and-so's event or you're from the tribe of people who are dirty or you're from the disloyal tribe. And there was so much going on in the political space that it had a direct impact on us growing up in the North. For example, when the coups happened, the military coups, when those happened, it always felt like it was a North versus South type of thing. And and whenever that occurred, there was a lot of tension. And there was tension not only because there was the Hausa Yoruba dynamic, but also because a lot of the folks, a lot of the officers lived in Kaduna. So these are people that we all knew. So it would be like this person's dad was the one that plotted the coup against that other person's dad. And we were all like schoolmates. So there was that added, oh, okay, you guys are part of the clue plotters. You guys are part of the ones that are trying to disrupt our kingdom, whatever it is that people were thinking about at the time. And in a weird way, there was a a bit of that Tutsi Hutu vibe going on. And initially, you know, like I said, it wasn't really in your face, but then it started showing up more and more. And then there's something else that used to happen, right? The only way I can really classify it is like the purge because it happens every often. As a matter of fact, as we're speaking right now, it's happening again right this moment in Kaduna. And I'm talking about things that occurred like 20 years ago and till today, it's still happening, right? Where the majority House of Fulani folks basically, and I don't want to say they're the ones who started all the time, but they basically have moments where they just go out and attack non-Muslim northerners or non-Hausa or non-northerners, like the Igbo people, the Yoruba people, the Southern Zaria people. Um, and they did that quite often, right? So as we were growing up, we started to experience more and more of those situations. And the crazy thing about it is, you know, I learned very quickly, you know, northerners are very loyal. You guys are all hanging out. You're cool. You're friends in school or whatever. But when stuff is about to go down, they're silent about it. Like, it's almost like, it's almost like, they don't really care what happens to you because, you know, you're part of the enemies. I mean, yes, we're cool with friends in class or whatever, but I don't really care if they get you. You know what I'm saying? It was in your face. You know, you couldn't come to so-and-so's house. You couldn't go to so-and-so place. Oh, you dirty, smelly people. I don't shake hands with unbelievers, you know, things like that. And people would say it to your face. And it was like, you know, people joke about it all the time. And and I, and I and it's not just a... It's not just a house thing. I think Yoruba people do it as well. It's like, I want what I was saying. You know what I'm saying? Like we have, <laughs> tribalism is a huge thing, you know, in Nigeria, but it was, it was super, it was really, really in your face. By the time I was like 15, I was just like, you know what? Yeah, I need to get out of here. And getting out of here for me at that time meant, you know, leaving Kaduna and probably, you know, going to the US, which never materialized because my dad was like, no, you need to come to Lagos. I didn't really like Lagos. I visited Lagos a lot when I was younger, but I didn't really like it because it, it was just too chaotic for me. 
Kaduna is very suburban, laid back when it's not crazy, when the riots haven't started and they go on their purge. It's a really laid back place. It was cool. It was fun. I'm talking about like in the 90s, watching House Party, dressing up like the characters, skateboarding, dancing, breakdancing, beatboxing, rapping. It was that kind of vibe. It was like growing up in like some suburb in Houston and then someone just drops you in the middle of Manhattan and they're like, all right, go. I was losing my mind every time I went to Lagos. So the idea that I had to go to school in Lagos for me was like, oh my God. I get to Lagos. I start at the University of Lagos and I knew absolutely nothing about the confraternities and the secret cults and all of the campus gangs. I had no idea, you know, about any of that. So music kind of became my escape from all of that. And that's the reason why, regardless of what was going on on the outside world, as long as I had a way for me to make music in my space. It kind of kept me away from everything, right? Because I wanted to just go from my class to my dorms, stay in dorms. Don't go hanging around anywhere where you can get caught up in some BS because there was a lot of BS going on. I mean, it was a huge population of my fellow students that were in the cults and the gangs. And it was a really tough place to be. I remember one particular experience that I had, one of many, but this, this, well, this one of them all kind of stands out to me because it was a close call. So on this one night, I'm walking back from my class, from my studio, I was in architecture. So we used to stay in class till like really late, you know, working on all of our blueprints for our plans and all that kind of stuff. So I'm coming back at, I don't know, it was probably close to midnight, right? And then the next thing I hear like gunshots and then I hear people like screaming and yelling. I see people running all kinds of different directions. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I look, I see people jumping off from the second floor of the dorms. It was just crazy. So obviously I knew there was some sort of attack going on. So apparently there were two groups that were fighting. They used to call them hits back then. So they ordered some kind of hit and they came into the dorms at the same time and basically went and attacked a bunch of people. Long story short is when everything died down and I finally made it to the front of the dorms to actually go in, they had people on mattresses that had been like hacked with machetes and axes and shot. And I'm talking about not like one or two, I'm talking about 26 that I counted. They couldn't lift them by their their limbs because their limbs had been almost severed by the attackers. Like it was that bad. What's crazy about that whole thing was no one knew about it. No one heard about it. It just kind of just went away. When I went home and I told my mom about it, they thought I was just making excuses and I wanted to leave. I was like, I witnessed this. I saw it by myself. Like, this is not, this is a really dangerous place and it's a dangerous situation. But, you know, I guess it just never makes it out there. Like, no one really likes to talk about these things, you know? I remember there was this one other time when we were going to have lunch and then all of a sudden I see like six guys surround this one guy and then the next thing they try to attack him and then he breaks free and starts running and they run after him and in broad daylight i'm talking about like 12 in the afternoon they shoot him like they're not shooting at him like while he's on the ground they're shooting at him while he's running and in every direction that you can imagine this was on a college campus in every direction you can imagine there are people i'm actually surprised that nobody else got hit because they literally were just shooting at random with shotguns they kill this guy, broad daylight, just right there. And then 30 minutes later, everything just kind of calms down and people just start going like nothing happens. The body is there. People walking past the body. Like I grew up in Kaduna. I had seen like the riots and things like that in Kaduna. And those were, you know, spectacularly bizarre as well. But this was like just it was a lot to handle. 
while he was struggling to fit into life at Lagos, one thing that always kept him busy was music. He talks about how the group The Tribesmen came to be. Tribesmen was kind of a product of the fact that KB, who we went to high school together, happened to be at University of Lagos as well. And coincidentally, we stayed in the same dorms, not just the same dorm. We were actually in the same what they call hall, which is pretty much the same like row. So I was an E110. He was an E105. So we're like five doors away from from each other. And he knew that I used to, you know, I was making the demos. We had done some demos together in high school, maybe one or two, actually nothing serious. But he was one of the only people that could relate to what I was doing. Or that could even relate to anything that I could relate to because we were from a completely different world and we were dumped in this place and it was like a sink or swim situation. So he could relate to what I was going through. And so me and him used to get together and we started making some demos. And some of the demos we made, the boys on the campus started to hear the demos. As a matter of fact, some of the more dangerous boys on the campus heard our demos, found us, had us do like little performances every now and again. KB actually was in a room with some really dangerous people and they would be like, oh man, I like this guy. Blah, blah, blah. Can you rap for us? Oh, yeah, come on, rap for us. Come on, rap for us. You know, there was a lot of that going on. So we started getting a little bit popular and somehow, some way, some of my friends that knew of what we were doing also knew some other guys, you know, who were also rapping. So I'd heard about Freestyle. I'd heard about Rugged Man. I heard about a couple other guys like that were in the area, right? Not on the campus, but in the neighborhood. They were also like in Bariga, Kokayaba area. At some point, one of our friends introduced us to Freestyle. And then Freestyle came, you know, he played us some of his stuff. We played some of our stuff. And that's kind of how we kind of hit it off. The Freestyle story is I had a friend named Swave, Bio Adifuye, who actually did a, a, um, a movie soundtrack at the time. Believe it or not, they were doing movie soundtracks back then. And in that movie soundtrack, he had a, a song that he created where he featured Freestyle and Rugged Man, I think. Freestyle was on, on one of those records. Anyway, so that was the first time I heard Freestyle. And I was like, oh, who is this? Like, he's nice, you know. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll introduce you to him or whatever. But that never happened. And somehow later on through another friend of ours is kind of how we eventually met with Freestyle. So I'd already heard of him and he had also heard of us based on the fact that we were getting popular on the, on the campus. And so we decided to do demos together. And that's pretty much how Tribesman came about. I had been making demos, so I was kind of used to the process of recording, you know, and, and doing all of that and making music. We're actually not creating initially. We used to use instrumentals, but I had, I had produced before, right? So creating music wasn't like a new thing to me. We're doing that from high school. One of the things that was fascinating to me when I moved to Lagos was Pigeon. Because I didn't speak Pigeon when I was growing up in, in Kaduna. I didn't really have the opportunity to learn Pigeon because there wasn't a lot of Pigeon speaking people around me. So when I moved to Lagos, Pigeon was exciting to me. I just liked the idea of like having like a Nigerian Patois. You know, this is not to say that people didn't speak Pigeon in the North, but the interaction was minimal. Right. But then I come to this place where everybody, everybody speaks Pigeon. I'm like, man, this is fascinating. I need to learn this. Right. And so I wanted to put that in the music like bad. And one of the other things, too, was I was a student of hip hop and an early hip hop. I mean, from like the Run DMC, Russell Simmons era through the Tribe Called Quest and the Busta Rhymes and the Queen Latifahs all the way to the Naughty by Nature's um, and Eric Sermons and EPMDs. And I saw what they were trying to do 
and really how they built the movement. So for me, it was almost like there was a blueprint already, right? So there was a non-existent music industry, you know, in Nigeria at the time. And what I was trying to do initially, I don't know, wasn't really to create a music industry. It was really to do something unique, right? And because everything that we heard on the radio that was Nigerian to me at the time sucked. And I figured we can do better than these guys on the radio, even with the demos that we're making. Don't forget the demos we're making at the time, we weren't really trying to go pro with it. We were just, it was just a hobby. It was just my little getaway and something we did on the side, right? So people are telling us, man, your stuff is better than damn near everything that's on the radio. You guys should get this to radio. So that was kind of when I started looking at it and then started going back to my learnings from like early hip hop and what those guys did to really start the movement. So that then became my focus. It's like, okay, you know what? This is a mission. This is something that I can put my energy into and really build. So that was the motivation for me. So we started recording and I figured that, you know, hey, if we can record more content and we can put it out there and we can reach out to more people and we can build a decent fan base, we can maybe potentially sell the music. We can start touring because if they like us on this campus, I'm pretty sure they'll like us on all the other campuses across the country, right? So we started to create and we started to kind of, you know, just build and build and build and things continue to grow. And every step of the way, there were challenges, right? First challenge was we needed to create original music. That was something I was very particular about. One, because I realized the importance of having original music, you know, learning from hip hop. And I also realized that one of the ways that we could do hip hop, but own hip hop was to make it Nigerian, right? And what better way to make it Nigerian than to use pigeon? So that was like my focus, like from back then, it's like, okay, you know what? We're going to localize this and we're going to create something that's unique. We're heavily influenced, just like everybody else around us at the time, by hip hop and R&B. So how do we take hip hop, R&B, and blend it with local Juju, Fuji, you know, high life and Afrobeat, you know, fellas Afrobeat music? How do we blend all of that stuff together? That was kind of what I was, you know, the way that I was thinking about it. Or maybe I wasn't even really thinking about it. Maybe that's pretty much all the influences that I had and whatever I was creating was going to come, you know, from that perspective anyway. I don't know. But I know that there was definitely a deliberate attempt by myself to do that. And I remember because most of the people around me at the time that also rapped did not want to do that. Keeping it real was a phrase that was very popular back then. People say, oh, man, you got to keep it real. Keeping it real meant doing rap in the purest form, the Brooklyn way, the Bronx way. But to me, it sounded contradictory, like from the very beginning, because, OK, this whole keeping it real concept is like, what do you keep? Who are you keeping it real to? Because you're definitely not from New York. You're definitely not from from L.A., California, wherever. So I, I don't really understand how you think you can compete with Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg can't compete with me if I rap in Pigeon. So I'm going to rap in Pigeon because this is what makes me unique. And then don't forget, this was an era also where every rapper had their own signature. So sounding like someone else was something that from the beginning I was very conscious of not doing because I figured the only way you could be truly unique was for you to have your own sound. And I think that that's what kind of drove us down the road that we eventually went. So Freestyle, he bought into the idea as well. It was interesting. It was unique. And then also the response. I think the response as well helped those who didn't really believe in it initially to see kind of what I was always saying about, you know, we got to make the, the chorus has to be in pigeon every time. Sometimes I would cave and be like, okay, whatever. We could do like a hip hop chorus, right? But the songs that really caught on were the ones that didn't have a hip hop chorus. So the first song we actually put out was Tribal Mart. Who do this rapping? Obunge rapping. Who do this rapping? Tribe's man. Obunge rapping. Tribe's man. 
I came round for party. Right. I got cash to get in fever. Right. Yeah. Now how I for rock? How I for rock? How I for boot? How I for boot? Ah, do the minute that comes out everybody's like whoa, whoa 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 hold on who are these because this was like pigeon and then the raps would come on and it'd be like oh wait a second these guys are not from here you know what i mean so and that factor that shock factor i think was kind of what i figured we should ride on and that was kind of how tribesmen became what tribesmen became Something I always ask musicians every time I get a chance to interview them is when and how they heard their song on the radio for the first time. LD talks about the first time he heard a tribesman song on the radio, and I think it's one of my favorites so far. We had already kind of made CDs, gone to radio. We were trying to get music to play on, on radio. But at this time, Nigerian music wasn't really playing on the radio. If at all, it might have been like 2% of the music that was being played on radio. Everything else was Western. It was either, you know, hip hop, R&B or rock and roll, some other type of genre, reggae, lots of reggae. So we go to radio. Finally, there's some private radio stations that popped up. So Rhythm was um, one of the stations at the time and then Ray Power. And there's a particular OAP that we all listened to at the time. Like if you were a hip hop fan, his show was like kind of one of the sources for like new music. They used to get music from the States. They got like the playlists from there's a record pool i forget what it's called like the top 40 record pool where they send music to like all part different parts of the world that's how he got his music so he always had like the newest joints right so he also had a show he had a top seven at seven i think is what the show was called and he used to um the oap's name is jaj top gun so he's doing the top seven at seven and top seven at seven is where you hear all the new hip hop because they would have gotten some new records. They would have played a lot of it during the day. And then in the evenings, he would have like a top seven countdown rhythm, 93.7, hence seven. So he would play the seven songs. And I always used to have a cassette deck ready to record because that was how I could maybe catch some new records. So I had a tape in, I had thing on, on pause as usual, just waiting to unpause if I heard something good. And then he was counting down and then he got to like number two and he was like, oh, the number two record, you know, this is local. We haven't done this before, but this is just so dope. You know, this is some really good hip hop, you know, it's from Nigerian artists, blah, blah, blah. So when he started saying that, I was like, okay, I want to hear this. <laughs> so, so I unpaused and started recording. Right. And he was talking about it and talking about it and like really hyping it up. And I was like, man, I want to hear this, you know? And then the next thing he was like at number two this week, tribesman. I was like, wait, what? As soon as he said that my phone starts ringing, the little rotary phones back then, mom is running downstairs from upstairs. Sisters are going crazy in the house. Like it was a moment because this was like a dream. Imagine like the first time you hearing your song on the radio being the time when it was on the charts. Like it just had like a, a magnified effect and feeling to it. Also, because I realized that anyone who was a hip hop fan in Lagos at that time was listening to that show. So it really was a I mean, the hype around that was it was just phenomenal. I don't remember if I cried or if I was just, but it was exciting. It was really exciting. And it, it's one of my most memorable moments in my music career, period. You know, my phone's ringing. I pick up the phone. They're like, oh my God, everyone is screaming and yelling from the other side. As soon as I hang up the phone, it rings again. I pick it up. It's somebody else. Oh my God, I just heard your song on the radio, blah, blah, blah. So that was a moment. I mean, I don't know what it was like for KB and, and Freestyle. I know I did speak to KB and I think I spoke to Freestyle's brother, actually. But yeah, it was it was a moment. 
If you speak to people who were around when tribesmen were making music, one thing you're likely to hear is people wishing they did more. LD talks about the breakup of the group. I was already thinking about this from the standpoint of let's build a movement, right? So even when we were tribesmen, I realized that tribesmen as a single unit was not enough to create the movement that would become what is today's Afrobeats. I realized that we needed more people doing this, right? So I was always of the opinion of wanting to bring more people in, which is why we started the tribe, which is why, you know, you know, Two Shots and Two Ply and Sasha and Oladele and Double O and Blaze and everybody else came in, right? And the minute we started to do that, it felt like our goals were beginning to misalign. For me, again, trying to create a movement for freestyle might have been different because this was like an opportunity that we had that he felt like we were extending to people who may have. I mean, I don't want to speak for freestyle, but it's something I know didn't really sit very well with him. KB was a bit more lackadaisical. He was really just along for the ride. At least that was his attitude for the most part. So he was just like, eh, that's what we're doing. Okay, cool. Sure. Why not? Oh, we're starting a label. Oh, okay, cool. We're signing more people. Oh, okay, cool. Freestyle's like, yeah, I don't know. Why are we signing this guy? Is he really that good? Like, you know what I'm saying? So we started having some disputes because of that. And then at this point, don't forget, we're, we're famous already. People know us. Just everywhere we go, it's like, oh, tribesmen, tribesmen. And Freestyle didn't live with us on the campus. I lived on the campus. KB lived on the campus. KB and I lived pretty close, like throughout our stay on the campus. So I saw KB more than I saw Freestyle. Don't forget, I grew up with KB, <laughs> you know, almost because we went to the same high school. So we had a lot more in common, I guess, than I did with Freestyle, who we met in Lagos, who was, you know, kind of from a different background or whatever. So people around freestyle obviously used to tell him, hey, you know what? You're the dopest rapper. I used to tell him that is, man, you're the dopest rapper, you know, out of the group or whatever. So I think that then this is my opinion. Again, I feel like maybe it made him feel at the time that he could do it without the group. So he stopped showing up, started becoming harder to reach. The way that we did the records back then was that I'd make the track, record a hook, and then everybody would come and do their verses. Right. And freestyle stopped showing up. So some of the records that I actually made for Tribesmen ended up going to the other artists. So, for example, Two Shots, Tif Ole Kariam Go was supposed to be a Tribesmen record. Dari Atalade's uh, Young Man, not tell me where did you get your skills from? That was a Tribesmen record, you know, that Freestyle just never showed up to record his verses for. And so many others like that. I mean, no question. We had trouble. I think that was actually one of the sessions where it was almost like we forced him to do the session because I was like, listen, you have to do a verse today. We need to record this album, you know. So we're at the point already where things were going, <sighs> things were going south. You know, he was kind of starting somewhat of a new crew on the side, which I didn't mind at all because to me, I felt like, man, the more the merrier, right? The more people are doing this, the more of a movement we can have, the more shows we could actually do where we don't perform like four songs and then the show is over. We need to be able to do concerts. In order for us to do concerts, we need more artists, right? You know, we need more artists and we need people like us so we can also do our own concerts so we can control things. Because at the time, even though we were popular, there was no platform to actually do shows. So we had to sometimes figure out ways to create the events by maybe connecting with like a student union organization in some college, someplace. Hey, do you guys want to see tribesmen type of thing? You know, and we had great managers at the time too. Fab was actually our manager, like at the, in the early stages. And he did a lot of that type of legwork where he would reach out to people and be like, yo, do you guys want to see tribesmen? That kind of thing. 
So now that we had a crew, it was even better. So we started actually doing shows going, you know, north, east or whatever with the crew, which all of that, I think, was wearing down on the unit, the tribesmen unit. And at some point, the relationship had gotten so toxic that it just made sense for us to kind of go our separate ways. More from LD after this short break. For more of LD's story, head out to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Wally. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Wally, where you get access to extra stories from this episode and other episodes this season. He talked about the music video for his song, Bossy Bangba, and shared the story of how it was the first ever music video that was shot with a red camera. You can also hear him talking about one of his biggest songs, Big Boy, and why he isn't the biggest fan of the song years later. Once again, the address is patreon.com slash That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Now back to the show. So shortly after the split, I decided to move to the U.S. because um, at the time I felt like I had peaked in Nigeria and peaked in the sense that we needed to do things that I didn't know how to do because I felt like sonically we were lacking. I wanted the sound to be better. I wanted the videos to be better. I was shooting videos and editing videos and doing all of that, but I wanted to be in an environment where I could learn those things professionally, properly, right? So that was actually one of my motivations for moving to the U.S. as well, you know, even though it's kind of been like my lifelong as a kid dream to live in the U.S., you know what I mean? So while I was in the U.S. doing all of those things, working out of studios, I started to create music. It was just something that I did at my leisure. I would just create, create, create. Sometimes I'm driving around, I just have an idea. I record it on my phone or whatever device I had at the time. And then I get back home and I, I lay it down somewhere. So then I had a bunch of content that I had created and I was here in the U.S. by myself. And the Internet was not it wasn't what it is now where I could just send files back and forth, you know, to my other group members and be like, yo, can you jump on this record and, and whatnot? It was a little bit more difficult. They didn't have as much access to the internet as we did and whatnot. So I basically just started recording and recording and recording. And at some point, and, and there was a lot of frustration as well. So a lot of that frustration was showing up in the music. My frustrations with, you know, the group splitting up, my frustrations with, you know, not being able to be in Nigeria to continue with pretty much everything I was doing with the tribe. My girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now, left me for a little while in between there. So there was a lot going on in my life. And I guess music was my outlet. So I decided that I was going to do my solo album and I just basically started putting stuff together. And then something interesting happened. Oladili moved from the UK. He had moved from Nigeria to the UK as well around the time that I left. So when I had been in the US for, I think, about two or three years, he also moved to the US from the UK. And when he moved to the US, he basically moved to Georgia and we lived together. So the fact that I had someone else now that I could make music with and he continued to like just tell me, dude, you can do this. Just do it. Just do it. Do it. Do it. So he motivated me actually now that I think about it. And I've never really actually thought about it like this before, but he motivated me to actually do, you know, my solo albums. And um, yeah, so solo albums came. Yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> After releasing five albums as a solo artist, he decided to shift his attention away from music. He talks about leaving music behind. I think for me, it was a time when I had accomplished pretty much all of the things I set out to do. I wanted to get on the radio. I did. We wanted distribution. We got distribution. We wanted international acclaim. We got that. We wanted to tour internationally. We did that. We wanted to, I mean, pretty much all the things that I had 
somewhat i didn't have a, an actual vision board but you know like a mental vision board like all of the things that i thought i wanted to do i had done won awards traveled went to the grammys like i did pretty much everything i could think of met the big name artists all the folks that i looked up to growing up like i met them one-on-one -on -one. like it became work at some point and then also I, I was getting a little older i wanted to settle down and have a family i got married i had my daughter you know, I was spending a lot of time away from my daughter and at least her first year. I mean, I probably only saw her for a couple months out of the whole year because I was on the road a lot. You know, Bossy Bang Bang Big Boy were like huge records at the time. So I was touring. I was on the road with the telcos and the banks and we were in England and we were in the U.S. and it was all over the place. So I started kind of thinking about that gap of not being present for my family because I felt that there was a gap like that in my life by my dad not being present when I was younger. And it felt like it was it was kind of repeating itself. Growing up, I kind of resented my dad for it because he was really ever around and he was also very strict. So the little time he spent around, he was trying to correct the things that he thought was like bad behavior. But I'm thinking, man, every time I see you, I'm excited to see you. But it seems like you just want to kick me and shove me around. So there was a lot of resentment there and I didn't want that kind of relationship with me and my daughter. So I said, you know what, I'm going to have to figure out a way to be closer to my daughter, you know, while all of this is happening. And then it became evident that that may not be possible. Right. So that was one thing. The other thing that was happening, and this was like 2008, 2009, right? Around like when Big Boy was like really big was when this was happening. The other thing that was going on as well was I was starting to see things from a more financial black and white standpoint, right? So I was looking at numbers and I was starting to realize that the dreams that I had of what my financial independence goals were, I wasn't going to be able to accomplish them as a musician. So as a musician, you, you make a ton of money. Don't get me wrong. We had million dollar years, a number of them. So you make a ton of money. But as a musician in Nigeria, you spend a lot of money as well. It's almost like you spend just as much as you make because you have to keep up appearances. You can't fly regularly. You got to fly first class. You got to stay in the, the best hotels. When you go out, you know, people expect you to give them money. Also, I had a label that I was running. I had artists. There's so many things that I pretty much was responsible for, right? So you make that much money, but it wasn't really translating. So imagine having a million dollar year where you turn in about, I don't know, at the time it was maybe 200 naira to a dollar, maybe 200 million, right? But you spent 150 to make 200 million, maybe even 170 sometimes to make 200 million. When you start thinking about it from a financial standpoint, it doesn't make sense because if I had put 170 million into any other business, <laughs> But 30 million return is not a great return on that kind of investment. There's so many other things that I could be doing. And there actually, in fact, were other things that we were doing that made more sense from an investment standpoint. So when you start looking at the black and white, you're like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. What's going on here? You know, the market, I felt like wasn't ripe enough at the time. Digital wasn't as big as digital is right now, even though I still feel like the earnings from digital is still not enough. You have to tour. Me not wanting to tour meant that even my opportunity to make money was going to be limited. So I had to make a really tough call because if I invested that money in buying and selling cars, I would have made 10 times. I would have turned the money over 10 times, right? Tenfold. Music has taken up all my time. It's taking me away from my family. It's not allowing me to line up my financial goals. It feels like work now. I mean, we've pretty much done everything that there is to do. The industry has become a huge monster in Africa and even in Europe. 
And even the U.S. was starting to kind of feel the presence of Afrobeats at the time. So for me, I felt like, man, maybe it is time to hand over the baton to somebody else, or maybe it is time for someone else to take it from this point and run with it, which is kind of where I was at. So mentally, I checked out. And it also didn't help that all of my experiences in Nigeria and then the time that I spent in the U.S., there was a huge difference in, the, in my life, right? In the clarity that I had, in the um, mental space that I found myself, you know, in, in like those last, you know, seven years that I had lived in the U.S. If I wanted to continue, I would have had to stay in Nigeria. And I thought, you know what? Maybe it's time for me to move back to the U.S. Maybe my daughter deserves to not be around all of this. Maybe me keeping her in that environment is being selfish because it's really about me and not about her. If I want to put her in the best place and give her the best advantage to be able to be successful, especially in the world that's getting smaller and smaller, I think it'd be better if she were in, in Georgia than if she stayed in Lagos. Security was also a concern, right? I mean, security is always a concern in Nigeria, but it was a major concern. I had to figure out how to balance the worry of kidnapping. I mean, I knew people that were kidnapped. Damn near everybody I knew had someone close to them that had been kidnapped at the time. So there was also that concern. I mean, I would die if someone had kidnapped my daughter, you know what I'm saying? Or my wife or even my mom, you know, there was all of that to worry about. And everything was just basically leading me back to Georgia. And eventually that's pretty much what we did. Through most of LD's life, one of the most important people who has always been there growing with him is his wife, Dolakbo. He shares the story of how they met and the beauty of their 22 year relationship. So I met my wife at the university. We were in the same faculty. She had just joined. She was in urban and regional planning. So she's a planner. I was studying architecture. I was in my third year at the time. And I was looking out the window one day and I see this beautiful girl. I was like, man, who, who is that? And at the time, I was a playboy. I was like just out there just looking for haunting. So I'm like, man, I got to meet this girl. So I go down and somehow I see she's talking to someone that I know. So I kind of just slide in the mix, get to meet her. And then, you know, shortly after that, and she has a slightly different version of this story, <laughs> as you could probably imagine. Um, shortly after that, she came, you know, to my class as well. She claimed she came to see someone in my class, but ended up spending seven hours with me. So we bonded and we became really close and we started dating like almost it was we didn't even I don't think it was even up to a week after we met. And we started dating and, you know, we did pretty much everything together. She was with me all the time. You know, we spent a lot of time together while we we're on the campus. We pretty much grew up together. Last week of March is when we met. First week of April we were dating. There were so many things about her that made her like the perfect person to be with, right? One, she came from what I considered to be a similar background. Like we had the same sort of mindset in a sense at the time, you know, and this is like, I'm talking 1998. There weren't a lot of people that I could relate to moving to Lagos. She went to school in the North as well. So most of the things that she was into, I was into. Most of the things that I was into, she could relate to, right? Because she went to school with people like me who probably lived in Kaduna, grew up in the North. We had a lot in common, basically. And I know that this is like super cliche when they say you find someone that you guys just like click plug and socket like everything it was almost like i'm thinking something she's thinking the exact same thing and it's weird because we're like that till today it's unbelievable i feel like i'm really lucky in this i tell people this all the time and it sounds a little silly and arrogant but i wish that everyone would have the kind of relationship that i have with my wife because i'm just at peace when i'm around her 
hopefully she feels the same way about me but through everything that was going on think about like tribesmen right through all of that through you know being at the university through going through all of the crazy times with all that cultism and everything that was going on you know moving to the u.s her going to the uk for her masters and all of that and us just kind of staying together through all of that and getting to the point where we're like you know what let's move back to nigeria let's go do this music thing for real for real and then getting to the point where we're both like you know what i think it's time for us to check out like we've just always been in sync now there was a, a short period between 05 and 06 where we actually broke up i mean i think distance really was what caused that like we couldn't talk as much we couldn't hang out as much i was in the u.s at the time i'd gotten a job she couldn't relate to the fact that she would call me and I couldn't answer. <laughs> you know, I'm telling her, uh, yeah, you're, yo, I got 200 daytime minutes, man. You, you eating up my minutes. Like, can you call me like later in the night? And she's like, yo, I just want to talk to you. And there was just a lot that was like lost, you know, in communication between my new life here and, you know, her being in Nigeria. So um, it put a strain on the relationship. And at some point, I think she just like, you know what, if you don't want to do this anymore, just say so. And I think that I also had just gotten to a point where I was like, you know what, maybe we're not even going to have a chance to be together. Maybe this is it. So I uh, stupidly, now that I think about it, said, yeah, whatever. OK, you can do your thing and I'll do my thing. And Shortly after that, we kind of got back together again. I mean, it, it was one of those things where <laughs> we we were meant to be together. Like, I know it sounds cliche, like, but we were meant to actually be together. Like, I feel like if we hadn't gotten back together and I had gone like a different way, we would have eventually still gotten back together. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm glad that we did get back together as quickly as we did. That she didn't like stray off and maybe go marry somebody else or go have a kid someplace or something. It's just the most amazing thing the relationship that we have. I feel like there's an element of luck because it's rare that you find someone that you're just so in sync with. I see other people in other relationships. We have friends whose relationships aren't as smooth. Not to say that they have bad relationships, but I don't know if I've seen any other relationship that's like ours where we can be like completely and totally honest with each other, right? Where I can tell you any and everything, where you can tell me any and everything. You know what I'm thinking even before I say anything, how I'm feeling even before I feel it. Like it's, it's weird. I can't, I don't know how to explain it, but it's just one of those like really rare things. And I feel extremely lucky to be in, in, in the relationship that I'm in. I get worried sometimes that we might be setting my kids up for failure because they're looking at us, right? And they see a perfect relationship between husband and wife. And I feel like they're going to go out and look for the same thing. And I'm pretty confident that not everyone in life gets as lucky. So in a weird way, I'm like, man, these kids, it's almost like we're, we're setting them up. I mean, I hope and I really, really hope that they do find, you know, soulmates like <laughs> their mom and dad. But yeah, sometimes I get tripped a little bit about it. Like, man. As we've discussed in this show, being raised in an African home and choosing a direction like music doesn't typically get the best reaction from the average African parent. LD was one of the rare people whose dreams were supported by his parents, especially his mother. He talks about her influence and how instrumental she was in the success of his dream. My mom was a, a highly unusual Nigerian mother in the 90s and the early 2000s because this was a time when Nigerian music was not a thing that you wanted to tell anyone that you're affiliated or associated with in any type of way and here i am telling her i want to do music and she's looking at me and she's supportive 
it still blows my mind till this day. I know a lot of people, even from back then, even family members who are like, well, we still, it's still really hard to comprehend why she chose to support it. Now I can come up with a gazillion reasons why I've asked her before, you know, and she basically said, Hey, you know, I just wanted to support you. You know, I just wanted you to be happy and you were a good kid and you, I felt like you deserved whatever it is that you wanted. And so, you know, she just did it. But some of the things that she did, it was almost like she could see into the future because at a time when music was nothing to write home about, when she knew fully well that a lot of the investments that we were making wasn't really going to amount to anything immediately, she still invested in it. For example, she paid 4,000 pounds for equipment at one point. That's a lot of money. That was one time. I mean, she paid for the CDs that we initially made, the tapes that we made. She fronted us the money. She paid for the music videos. She paid for all of my demos that I did when I went to studios and I had to record. At the time, it was 8,000 hour per session, 1,000 hour per hour, which as compared to now is like, I don't know, 80,000 per session in Naira. Really, I think 8,000 at the time was more like 200K. So imagine a parent throwing that kind of money at a hobby, at her kid's hobby. Like it was just unheard of. Man, I feel like there's a lot that, that wouldn't have happened if she didn't get behind us with that kind of support. For one, all of the things we did with Alaba and the distribution and motivating those people to actually even do it, because obviously we had to print the CDs for them to be able to distribute it. They weren't going to invest their money in, in, in printing our CDs. My mom made that investment. Nobody was going to invest their money in us doing the tapes. Nobody was going to invest money in shooting videos. Nobody was going to buy us equipment. Nobody was going to give us money regularly to where I was able to actually buy clothes, not just for myself, but even for my group members. You know what I'm saying? Like she just did like some out of the box shit for the time that she did it. A lot of the foundation, the early foundation, the fact that we even showed up at a radio station with CDs was one of the things that actually let them let us in the door because the CDs were like a Big deal. It, was, it wasn't something you just came, came about. Cool FM started, and if you didn't have a CD, they couldn't play your music because they went and bought like ultra modern systems that they couldn't, they just couldn't play cassettes. So us showing up with CDs was like, whoa, okay, who are these guys? So there, there were so many of those things that she did that really, really helped. I mean, my dad played a, a pivotal role as well in the fact that he actually let me use, you know, an entire section of his office as my studio and, and Tribreca's office in Surulere at the time. He contributed a lot as well, but not in any way, shape or form as much as my mom. As a matter of fact, there's so many things that my mom did that she would never have wanted him to know about because he would have thought she was just out of her mind, <laughs> you know, and, and the funny thing is. I didn't realize it at the time, but I would have thought she was out of her mind as well. Like thinking about it now, like if, if I, if I were to be at that time, you know, from the outside looking in, and I'm sure she would have looked crazy to a lot of her friends, but she's one of those. And I, and I think she also, I, maybe I got a little bit of that from her. She's one of those people that, well, at the time when she was younger, I don't know, maybe now she's, she's a little different, but when she was younger, she didn't really care what anybody thought. Like she had a mind of her own. She was going to do her own thing. She wasn't out there trying to impress anybody. She did. She was OK. She was making good money. She was living a decent life. She would travel abroad whenever she felt like like my mom used to go to London for the weekends. You know what I'm saying? Just to go hang out, shop and come back. So she was good. But the society that we were in, Nigerian society, 
is almost like I tell my my Indian friends, I'm like, our cultures are similar because there's a lot of strict cultural nuances of what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And my mom was definitely not supposed to support my career as a musician. And as a result of a lot of the support that she gave us, other people started to do things that really led to an industry becoming, that even led to the possibility of the industry becoming what it became because we were trailblazers like every step of the way we were 10 steps ahead of everybody around us and a lot of that wouldn't have been possible without my mom to round things up i asked if he feels he gets his flowers from lovers of Afrobeats today i feel like i already got my flowers i feel like my flowers aren't really for anyone to give me. I feel like I already had my flowers. I just need to go back and, and sniff at it every now and again by myself. And the reason I feel that way is because the things that I set out to do, I already did. And I also recognize the fact that maybe Afrobeats would have become a thing if LD wasn't a thing, if LD wasn't alive. Maybe the fact that I was there at the time is actually a privilege. So when you think about it from that standpoint, you're more grateful than expecting some type of you know gratification from other people. I am actually grateful for the fact that I had the experiences that I had, that my dad stopped me from going to the US for college early on, that I moved to Lagos, that I went through everything that I went through, which put me in a place where I learned pigeon and then created this sound. And then everybody else wanted to make this sound. And then this sound became a global thing. And then all of these things are happening. When I see what's going on right now, that's me sniffing at my flowers. This is my dream. It's right here. It's happening in front of me. And don't forget, like from the beginning, this is never about me personally. This is always about creating something, creating a movement. I was motivated by a lot of the hip hop that I that I grew up on and I felt the need to create something as well. And I feel like all of the success that this genre or the culture in general is experiencing right now is my success as well, because directly or indirectly, I'm responsible for some of the stuff that's going on. So I don't need anybody to be like, oh yeah, LD is the this or LD is that. I know myself. I'm confident in in where we were when it's when we started and what we dreamt of doing and seeing all these things come to fruition is enough for me. big thank you to LD for sitting and speaking with me. I hope you enjoyed his stories. I surely did. Like I said earlier, it's rare that you get someone like him being very open as he was to speaking about these things and taking us into his world and where everything was. I really appreciate him speaking with me multiple times. Um, it means a lot. It's always great to hear from one of the people who is the foundation of what many people are enjoying now. For the longest time, I've always wanted to do a documentary on the history of Nigerian music. And LD is one of these people that I put on my list as people you have to speak to. So um, this is great. I have a better picture of his side of his story and um, a better representation of just how things became what they are. If you want to hear some stories that didn't make this episode, you can find them on my Patreon at patreon.com slash Wally. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. 
patreon.com slash Wally. You can get access for just $3 a month. Get access to those stories and other stories from this season that's not available to the public. Share this episode with your friends. Share this episode on your social media platform. You can use the hashtag in these moments pod or ITMPOD. Let me know what you think about the episode. Let me know how you enjoyed the stories, how you enjoyed um, this episode and other episodes. You can get in contact with me on Twitter at KingWole, K-I-N-G-W-O-L-E. You can find the podcast on Instagram at In These Moments Pod and also on Twitter at Moments Pod. All this is going to be in the show notes, so you can check the show notes for more information on that. I hope you enjoyed the episode being longer than usual. I usually come across people who tell me that, oh, you have to make the episodes longer. This episode is about an hour, so I hope I never have to hear that again. But uh, thank you for listening. Um, Take care of yourself. I'll be back with you on the next episode. Remember to follow social distancing guidelines. The pandemic is not over. Wear your mask, wash your hand, and take care of yourself. See you next time. Bye.